I ask you again to put yourself in the place of one of the disciples that followed Jesus and to think with me for a moment what they went through during those last weeks of our Lord's life and even then following that time. So maybe you're Peter or Andrew or James or John or Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, James the son of Alphaeus, Thomas, Thaddeus, Simon, and that's all. Because Judas is gone. Maybe you're one of these disciples and just think of the roller coaster that you have just gone through in the past few months. First of all, you're on a great, wonderful, amazing, as we say, high. Things were up. Things were going wonderful. You saw Jesus do some amazing things. Some amazing miracles. Just not that long ago, weeks ago. You saw Him stand at the tomb of Lazarus and cry, Lazarus, come forth! And He was raised from the dead. One who had been in the tomb for four days. And here He comes. It was electrifying. People were astounded. I imagine that people were falling to their knees and crying out and honoring God for what they saw. This is amazing. A man dead. And now He comes forth because of Jesus and the Word that He spoke to raise Him from the dead. And then, not long after that, as people were coming to see not only Jesus, but this one, Lazarus, you are sent out to get a donkey. And Jesus tells you where to find the donkey. You find the donkey, and Jesus rides on this donkey, and it's an amazing sight. All these people who were with Him up there in Bethany, all these people coming out from Jerusalem, and here's Jesus in the middle. They're laying their their garments, their Coats there, palm branches in front of him as he's going along, and people are yelling, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you are so excited. This is great! Jesus is getting the honor that you know he deserves because you know he's the Messiah. If you're Peter, you said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know it. And now he's finally getting what He is worthy of. And yet, not many hours from then, something goes terribly wrong. You're eating with Him at the Passover supper and the next thing you know, in Gethsemane, He is arrested. Hordes of soldiers come out against Him and He's taken away. And you scatter. You leave. You don't know what to do. You're distraught. And then you find and you learn or you witness the fact that He was not only arrested, but brought to trial, tried before the Sanhedrin, tried before Pontius Pilate, and He was sentenced to be crucified 
this Jesus that you knew for all these years had done nothing wrong, had only helped people, only been kind to people, only been gracious to people, healed people, and now He's going to die for that? And you hear that He had been scourged. You witness His bloody body paraded through the streets. And then He was crucified. Lifted up on a cross, bleeding, suffering, and yielding up His life. Dead. Just like that. From elation to total despondency. And concern and care and sorrow for your dear friend. Then, just three days later, there He is! Alive! In the midst of you and your brethren and your friends and the other disciples, here He is! Jesus is alive! And so once again, you're excited and happy and elated. He is risen From the dead. What can you imagine? How great that must have been. What a great moment. Great exciting to see Jesus who was dead now alive again. And so you're excited again. You're you're happy again. You're up and things are going well again. You're elated. Encouraged. Excited. And He stays with you and appears to you. Speaks to you. And teaches you for 40 days. And then, He's gone again as He has ascended back to the Father. But then, another exciting thing happens right after that. The Holy Spirit is poured out on you. And you are now filled not only with excitement, But as we will see, you are filled with understanding. You are filled with knowledge and appreciation for all that Christ was and all that Christ had done and what it all meant is now becoming clear. And you have this great boldness that is given to you from the Holy Spirit and power is given to you from on high and you go forth and you begin to preach and to teach the truth of Jesus Christ. Peter preaches and thousands are converted. So there's no more downs. There's challenges. There's trials. But somehow or other you find that it isn't even that big of a deal if you're arrested or imprisoned, or beaten. Because now you've found that you're, you're worthy of God to be arrested and beaten for the Gospel. And it's a good thing. That's pretty much where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4. If you would turn there again with me. Acts chapter 4. This is somewhat what happened to the Apostles. This is the roller coaster that they had been on. But now, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them, lo and behold, they get it. Things become clear. They begin to understand who Jesus was in all His glory and what it meant 
for Him to die on the cross. And they go out and they preach it. And here is what they tell us today from the Scriptures. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And when they had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit... Now remember, they, they hardly even knew what the Holy Spirit was just days before. Jesus had told them the Holy Spirit would be poured out, but now they know. Because now they have been... They have experienced the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David thy servant did say, Why do the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise futile things. The kings and all the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand, thy purpose, predestined to occur. This morning we're going to begin to open up this passage in light of what we had seen already regarding the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now they're talking about that. They're talking right here in this text. When they say in verse 27, Truly in this city there were gathered together against the Lord and against His servant Jesus. They're talking about the things that took place against Jesus. The things that happened to Jesus regarding His, what we call, passion. And I want to open up this text for the next few weeks and look at what they teach us and then look at how it is supported by the facts in the Gospel accounts. I want to begin then, first of all today, by seeking to understand what is being said. To hear, see what is being said. And then we're going to look at what actually happened. But what are they saying here? And I'm going to focus in today on verse 28. And just open up what is being said to us. As the disciples think about what happened to Jesus. And then they say in verse 28, to do these things to Him but they say to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And what I want for us to see in this whole series, these whole few messages, is the sovereignty of God in the cross of Christ. The sovereignty of God in the cross of Christ. For they speak of the things that happened to Jesus, and then they say that these things are what your hand and your purpose predestined. Let's take these three as they are naturally given, and look first at what they speak of when they speak of thy hand. To do whatever thy hand. What is that speaking of? 
What do we know and what do we think of when we speak of God's hand? And if you're like Cliff, I know he's right away thinking about the mighty right hand of God. And that's what we read about in the Scriptures. The hand of God. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. The hand of God. The mighty hand of God. Here we read in this text regarding what God did to the nation of Israel or for the nation of Israel as He delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Moses says to them in verse 11, Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why doth Thine anger burn against Thy people whom Thou hast brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. So when we speak of the hand of God, we see in Scripture that often it speaks of the mighty hand of God and it is a reference to His almighty power. Think about what God did to deliver Israel from the land of Egypt. Mighty, powerful act. The plagues that came upon them. The dividing of the Red Sea as they were escaping. All these mighty acts of God. The mighty hand of God was shown in the delivering of Israel from Egypt. Look over a couple of pages or chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And here... We have the mighty hand of God and His outstretched arm. I want to just make sure that we all understand as we're looking at these things that this is what we call anthropomorphic language. God does not have a hand. God does not have an arm. God is a spirit. Now, Jesus does. But when we speak of God the Father, He is a spirit And He does not have features as we have. This is language that we can understand attributed to God that is referred to as anthropomorphic language. And so we read here in Deuteronomy chapter 5 down in verse 15, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So this, again, speaking of their deliverance from Egypt, speaks of His might and His power in the form of the hand of God and even the outstretched arm of God. There are many other references that we could turn to, but look back to our text in Acts chapter 4. When therefore these men pray and speak, because they are praying to God, and they're saying to Him to do whatever Thy hand It is a reference, therefore, of the power and might of the sovereign God of the Bible. To do what you desire 
And when you desire to bring forth your might and your power, there is none that can resist. There is none that can stop the mighty hand of God. What did Pharaoh do to stop the hand of God? When God determined to deliver His people Israel from Egypt, God worked in a mighty and in a powerful way, and no one could stop the hand of God. Except when Moses, by the instruction of God, told it to stop, God would stop the plagues. But it was God's might, God's power. And so here too, they are saying that in the things that happened regarding the cross, it was the mighty, sovereign power of God. And none could stop it. Do you remember in the book of Daniel? And Nebuchadnezzar was sent out and became like an animal. And when he was restored to his senses, what did he say? He realized that the God of the Bible, the God of the Scriptures, the God of Israel was the true God. And He would act. And none could stay His hand or say to Him, What doest thou? Because He's God. And God acts as He pleases in power and in might and in authority. And so, here in this text, when these disciples speak of what happened with Jesus Christ, that these people did only what the powerful hand of God would allow. It was God's sovereign power that brought these events to pass. His authority is above any man, anywhere in the universe. No one could have stopped what God had purposed to do. And that's what we go on to the next thing. As they speak of thy purpose. Thy hand and thy purpose. And when we speak of the purpose of God, what we are looking at here is the mighty wisdom of God. The ways of God. The intricate purpose of God from all eternity is far beyond our comprehension. Look again back into the Old Testament. This time, turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55. This is a familiar passage. But don't let it just be a familiar passage. Understand what's being said. Realize what he's saying. Isaiah chapter 55. We read in verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, the unrighteous man His thoughts, and let Him return to the Lord. Oh, do we pray that in our day. There's so much going on in our day with wickedness abounding that we would pray that the wicked would turn from their sin and turn to the things of God, to the truth of God. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God 
and He will abundantly pardon. For My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways My ways, declares the Lord. As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are My ways higher than your ways and My thoughts higher than your thoughts. I'm glad for that. I'm thankful for that. And in particularly in light of what He says before it. Because we see a vast multitude of people driving by, caring less about worshiping God on His Lord's Day. Caring less about the things of the Gospel or the truth of His Word. And we think, God, it's just too far gone! How can there ever be another awakening to the truth of God in our day? It's too far gone! Sin is too rampant! People don't care! And yet, that's the context in which God says, return to Me. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. My thoughts are, woe is us! How on earth can we bring the truth of God's Word to a people who don't care? His thoughts, I pray, are, it'll happen. He can and will bring to pass revival, awakening, truth brought back to His people, truth brought to a people. And this is what we pray. The things of God, the truth of God's Word, elevated and lifted before people. Lift Him up and He will draw men to Himself. His ways are much better than ours. His thoughts much higher than ours. But this is what the disciples were talking about. This is what they were saying when they came in. Thy hand and thy purpose, His thoughts, His ways are brought to pass. No matter how men stand against Him. Now, in that passage right there in Acts, they actually quote Psalm 2. But I want to look at the actual psalm. So if you would turn please to Psalm 2. In conjunction with the powerful, sovereign might of God, His hand, we add the purpose of God, what He purposes to accomplish. And I say to you, on the authority of the Scripture, it will come to pass. Because of His might and power, His sovereign purposes will come to pass. Here in chapter or Psalm 2, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, against His Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. You hear what they're saying? They're looking for ways to defeat the purposes of God. Let us cast aside His fetters. Let us turn them aside and do away with these things. We have that going on all the time today. 
We have scientists that tell us, well, you know, evolution is fact. We talked about this a little before. They're a little upset about people not believing in the Big Bang Theory. You hick religionists. What's the matter with you? Don't you understand fact? Fact? They talk of these things like they are fact and they forget that even the technical name is the theory of evolution. It's not a fact. As a matter of fact, it's a lie. And they devise these things and they come up with these schemes and these ideas and these things that they will teach your children to tear off the fetters of God. To do away with the constraints of the holiness of God upon a people that will one day have to answer to them. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to think that they will one day have to answer to God. So they want to cast aside those fetters, those things that would attach us to the being of God and and our responsibility to answer to God. They don't want that. They want to do away with that. And so they devise all these schemes and all these things. Evolution. All these other plans and stuff that they come up with. Science. And what does God do? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why? Because of His might. His mighty right hand. His outstretched arm and His purpose will accomplish what is right for His people. The purpose of God will bring forth the redemption of those He has purposed to redeem. Will bring forth His plan. And that's the next thing we'll see. But let me just say that there is no occasion No occasion when the purposes of God will be thwarted. When the purposes of God will be frustrated. When the purposes of God will fail. There is no time that that will happen. There is no situation when that will happen. There is no occasion when that will happen. The purposes of God will prevail. Now, I know people don't like to think of that today, just as this psalm teaches us. What can we do to get out from under the hand or the thumb of God, is what they would say, or what they would think. And some of the things they come up with are strange stuff. People change language and bring up language and bring up things that they don't even understand. People today talk about luck. They say, good luck. Or you got this by luck. Or boy, are you lucky. Luck, my dear pastor used to tell me, is a pagan god. Don't elevate that pagan god. Don't say good luck. Because we believe not in luck, but in God. And His purposes... And His plans that will prevail. Others come up and speak of things such as coincidence or karma. Karma. 
what happened to you happened because of karma. Oh, my dear people, it is the sovereign purpose of God that prevails, not karma. God's plans will not be thwarted, will not be frustrated. And for those who stand against Him, it is utter futility. The purposes of God are sure. They are certain and none can frustrate them. So what are we to assume then when it comes to the cross and what happened with Jesus? Was it luck? Karma? Or as we see in our text in Acts chapter 4, Thy hand and Thy purpose. Thy hand and Thy purpose. This is what the disciples prayed to God. This is what they were doing. That even the events of the passion of Jesus were part of the sovereign plan of God brought about by His might and power, His powerful hand. No man and no amount of the schemes of man could ever have stopped what was going on with the passion of our Lord. It was His hand and His purpose, which brings us to the third one that they mention. Thy hand, thy purpose, predestined to occur. So if we could say the powerful hand of God, the wise purpose of God, combined with the infinite and eternal plan of God, His predestined plan is what took place. What He predestined to occur. Proordinizo. Word predestined. It is to decide beforehand. A decree from eternity. He determined from before the creation of the world to redeem a people to Himself. He foreordained the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to be the Redeemer of His people. This is what they're saying. Now, I mentioned next week, we're actually going to see how these things develop in the Scripture. So that you know that they are absolutely right. As we look into the various things that occurred involving the passion of our Lord, as we see these things promised in Scripture and fulfilled in Jesus, we see that this is exactly what happened. The mighty hand of God through the purpose of God, came to pass just as He foreordained it would. As He promised it would from the very beginning of the Bible. And this we see even in, as I said, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is saying then that the eternal plan of God will come to pass by His hand. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. You know what that means? It simply means He is the King. And we say the King of Kings. The first King is capital K. The King of Kings. 
small k, of all the nations and all the leaders in those nations, He is the King of kings. He is the Lord, the Master of all lords. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Ruler. He is the Sovereign Ruler. This is our God. And we must include with that understanding that He rules sovereignly the fact that He does not rule indiscriminately. As we're talking about His purpose. He has a purpose, a plan, and He does not rule indiscriminately. He is not capricious. You know what I'm talking about when I say things like that? You kids, maybe. In other words, God is in fickle. He doesn't turn around and go, I'm going to zap you and zap you for no reason. He's not like the Greek or the Roman mythical gods that would throw lightning bolts from where they were in heaven down at people. God's not fickle. God does not rule indiscriminately. He is a principled, purposeful God. And His principles and His purposes are revealed to us in some measure in the Scriptures. As He tells us that He is a holy God. An infinitely holy God. And this is the God who we worship. Not a God who changes on a whim. Our God changes not. He is consistent. He is consistent in His grace and in His compassion, in His love and in His mercy. And He is consistent in His justice as well, saying that He will indeed judge the sinner. This is the purposeful God who is a sovereign God. He is a God who is eternally wise, knowing all things. And with this, we combine this eternal purpose that nothing therefore happens by accident, but by the hand of God. When you read in the Proverbs, it even says that a man devises his own steps, but God directs his paths. I expect to go home today after church sometime. But it may be the sovereign plan of God that some out-of-control truck driver runs into my car. I devise my plan, but ultimately God is in control. We're not robots, but He is sovereign. And He is in control. And His purposes and His plans will always prevail. His predestined plan for our Redemption prevailed in what Christ did on the cross. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by luck or karma. We believe in the eternal, sovereign God who rules heaven and earth. And from that time when He promised a Redeemer in the garden to Adam and Eve, All has worked together for His purposes of redemption. All has worked together for Him to redeem a people to Himself. Nothing by accident, but by His sovereign plan. 
my people as a sovereign God. He rules as He sees fit over all His creation. He is in control of all. And nothing happens outside of the purview of His will. I believe so soundly and solidly in the sovereignty of God that God orders all things. That as a truck goes by, not a speck of dust settles where God doesn't want it to. Not a snowflake falls where God doesn't ordain it to fall. God is in control of all things. That is beyond our comprehension. Remember what we read in Isaiah, way above our pay grade. How on earth can God do that? How can He be so concerned about a flake of dust or a snowflake or the rain? God sends His rain upon the just and the unjust. Even Jesus said that. How can He do that? Every drop of rain falls where God wants it to do. How can that be? I don't know. But it is. Because He is God. Do you realize, do you understand that that is all we're saying? All we're saying is that this God is God. The God of the Bible is the God who is in control of all things. That's why we call Him God. That's why He is God. That's how He reveals Himself to us in the Scriptures. How could He create everything not from a little molecule, not from a little compressed bunch of stuff, and then bang, it just happened. But He created everything that exists ex Nahilo, out of nothing. Because He is God. Do you realize if He was not God, you would not be here. I would not be here. This building would not be here. This earth would not be here. Because if He were not God, nothing would be here. Because He created everything that is. And so if you are here, and if you can wiggle your finger, there's a God. You exist. Credit to R.C. Sproul. I saw him do that in a sermon. If you can do this, you know God exists. Because He is the God who is sovereign over nothing. The God who is sovereign over nothing. Out of nothing! God created everything. And He controls it all. We are not deists who believe that God just kind of made the earth and stepped back and doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. We are theists. We believe that God created and God is even now in control of all things. Everything. You. And so they said here in Acts chapter 4, all of this happened with the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ because of Thy hand, because of Thy plan, because of Thy purpose. He brought it about. 
We live in a day when the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is much maligned. And in many cases, it's even denied. Men don't want a God who is God. You know, this has happened not just recently, but we make, we make a reference to it a lot in our day of the so-called macho man. You know, the macho man thing. I'm in control. I don't need God. I'm a man. And then we have the women's lib. I am woman. Hear me roar. Man has elevated himself or herself and has lowered God. God can't be in control because I'm in control. God can't bring things to pass the way I think it should happen. I bring them to pass. I'm in charge of my own destiny. That's the kind of day in which we live. It is also seen in the works mentality in churches where people think that they can just be good enough. If I am good enough, then God is obligated to save me. If I do these kind of works, this work, this work, this work, this work, this work, then God must send me to heaven. Do you see how the role has been reversed? He's not in charge. You're in charge. Do enough works, finger enough beads, say enough prayers, do enough of this, go to a church enough times. All these things, and it's true in Baptist churches too. Just come forward. Make a decision. You do this work, and then God is obligated to save you. I believe that it begins with God. That if God did not work in your heart and your life, you would still be dead. Dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And only by the grace of God are you made alive. It starts with God. God. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is God. God is God. Imagine that. This is the God that these men are speaking of. To deny the sovereignty of God, to view Him as less than sovereign, is to see Him as less than God. If you do not believe that God is sovereign and God is in control, you're looking at something less than God. Because the God of the Bible is the God who is in control. His sovereignty is over all things. And if it were not so, He would cease to be God. And so we have here in our text these men coming back from being arrested, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking boldly to others and speaking out even to the, the Sanhedrin and the rulers of their Israel nation. And they say, let you be the judge if we should listen to you or to God. Because God is God. And you're just men. And this, all of this, came about by the hand, by the purpose, 
and by the plan predestined by the sovereign God. I want to ask for a moment as we close this morning, just to think for a few moments. And we'll just look at a few spots. What if his plans were thwarted? What if he wasn't really in control? If you would, please turn to Matthew chapter 4 and think about this. Here's Matthew chapter 4. It begins with verse 1 and Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you're familiar with this text, right? The devil comes and tempts Jesus and he tempts him in several ways. And he says, first of all, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. That's verse 3. Jesus answers and says, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you. And on their hands He will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship Me. Now, stop and imagine that Jesus says, Okay, Imagine if Jesus gave in to the temptation of the devil. Now, I know that that's impossible because Jesus is God and He is without sin and does not give in to temptation. But what if the plan of the devil had succeeded? Because the plan of the devil was to get Jesus, the Son of God, to cease being God. To not go to the cross. To not be your Savior. What if the plan of the devil had worked? Now, I said before, there's no way, no one, no how that the plans of God will not prevail. So it would not, could not have ever happened. But we do see again, or we do see here, that God is sovereign in His plan. And Jesus, as the very Son of God, knew exactly what to say to this usurper, this serpent, as He says, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began ministering to him. Now, I have a few others, a little more realistic, that I want you to see from the Scriptures next week before we go on to see how all the things that the disciples are talking about in Acts chapter 4 regarding Jesus came to pass by the sovereign plan of of God. The mighty, powerful hand of God, the purpose of God, and the predestined plan of God came to pass 
just as God had foreordained. And that's what we're going to see. And you're going to see that it is exactly what these disciples were talking about. And it could be no other way. But for today, let us relish, bask in, embrace the God who is God, the sovereign God of the Bible. Let's pray.